purpose tonight. We're going to talk about angelology, which is more than just the study of angels. It would include angels, but it's also going to include Satan, and it's also going to include demons. So all of that's going to get lumped in together tonight. And I'll tell you, I think I say this probably every week now, but this is just a fly over the top of what we could talk about, some of the questions that we could ask and some of the questions we could try to answer about these topics. Uh, I'm just going to try to sort of hit some main central ideas. This is a topic I do feel like, um, sort of, I'll talk out of both sides of my mouth. I feel like on the one hand, I know a decent bit about it, and then at the same time, I know enough to know how much I don't know about it. Um, In 2008, Brooke and I were living in Kentucky, and I was still going to seminary. I had finished all my Ph.D. classes, and the only thing I had left for my degree was to take comprehensive exams and to write a dissertation, and I hadn't started either of those yet. So I went and I met with my advisor, and I sat down. My advisor was Chuck Lawless. And I sat down in his office and I said, uh, it's kind of time to start working on dissertation stuff. And I said, I, I kind of have a problem. I said, I'm, I'm so sick of school right now. I've gone to school nonstop since kindergarten. And especially in college, I went every summer session, every January session, everything. I crammed in as much as I could in, in college and then at seminary for two degrees. And I said, my dilemma is there is nothing I am interested in enough to write a dissertation about. Nothing interests me that much. I just don't want to do it. So you just tell me what you want me to write it on, and I'll do that. It'll be as good as anything else. And he said, well, you know, a couple semesters ago, we we had such and such seminar, and you wrote a paper in there. It was on Paul's view of demons and how Paul talked about demons. He said, that was a pretty good paper. Why don't you take that and just expand it and We'll work on it, and that can be your dissertation. So I did that, which is strange. I never thought about it on the front end, but on the back end, when people say, oh, you went to seminary, you got a PhD, what did you do your dissertation in? The short answer is, I wrote about demons. And when you tell people that, they just sort of look at you like, well, that's kind of weird. Um, and it is kind of weird, honestly. Um, So I took one tiny sliver of this topic, and that's what I've studied for a couple of years and wrote about. And uh, and honestly, there is a side of me that says I've read as much on this topic as any other topic that I've studied in my life. I mean, I had to read tons and tons and tons of stuff and and research and, and look into it and study it and go back to the original languages and the scriptures and all that sort of stuff. So on the one hand, I say, I feel like I've read a lot about this, and I kind of know what I'm talking about. But I honestly do come to it at the same time and say, I also know how much I don't know. And if you've ever pursued learning in anything, you've experienced that, where you sort of begin to get a grasp on something, but even as you get a grasp on it, you realize, oh, I didn't even know the things that I didn't know. Now I know all the stuff I don't know, and I just feel a little bit more inadequate. So... This is an interesting topic to study um, from a biblical perspective, but also from a cultural perspective. And I'll share with you a couple of quotes here. This is actually a quote from James P. Boyce. This was the first president of the seminary that I went to, Southern Seminary. 
And he wrote this in a, a book he wrote on systematic theology. He said, the belief of evil spirits has been almost universal in the world. The exceptions may indeed be said to be only the few who in more modern times have supposed this universal opinion to be simply the result of superstition. And what he's saying is, basically everyone from the beginning of time has been in agreement that there are evil spirits. And the only exception to that is very modern thinkers who exclude this unseen supernatural realm from reality, and they are the minority. As much as they like to sound smart and sophisticated and they know what's right and everyone else is wrong, he's saying it's just interesting that everyone else all over the world for all time has been in agreement that there are such things as evil spirits. Uh, Here's another quote. This is from a a Dutch theologian named Burkhoff. He said, No one who bows before the authority of the Word of God can doubt the existence of angels, which is just sort of a different perspective on it. He's not talking about demons but angels. And he says, Look, if you're going to believe the Scriptures, you have to believe in angels. You can't walk away not believing that they're real or calling it superstition or saying it's just a sort of a a fairy tale type thing. You have to believe in them if you believe in the authority of Scripture. Um, And so here's the sort of weird dilemma in our culture, okay? Um, The United States is different than almost any other place you'll go in the world when it comes to this issue of spiritual power, spiritual beings, angels, demons, whatever you want to call them. Most of us, I think, were Wednesday night Bible study crew. We would submit to the authority of Scripture, and we would say we read the Bible, and it talks about angels, and it talks about demons, so we believe that they are real. What would make us unique compared to many people around the world is that most of us would say, I've never had any kind of experience with any of these creatures, though, with angels or demons. And some people who would say, oh, I've had experience with it, with them, they would start to describe that to me if they did, you know, were telling me about it, and I would say, no, I don't think you know what you're talking about. That's, that's not biblical. It doesn't line up with reality of what the, the scriptures say. So I don't know what you experienced, but it wasn't what we're talking about here in the scriptures. And so let me just start off with, because our culture is in a funny place with, with angels and demons, with a, two clarifications. Um, Hunter is teaching on this tonight. Upstairs, he's kind of following us along with the youth and, and teaching it uh, these same ideas, some of these same ideas. And today, me and him talked a little bit about clarifications that we might want to offer, and we came up with a lot. I'm just going to give you two, okay? Two things are not on your notes, but you just need to understand because we're confused as a culture. The first clarification is this I'm looking in the room, you're all human beings, okay? Never will you be an angel. Never. You have as good a chance of being an angel someday as you have of being a cow someday or a rock someday. It's, it's equally as absurd to think someday I'm going to be an angel, I'm going to get wings, I'm going to da-da-da-da-da. I don't care what the country music songs say, I don't care what the TV shows say or the movie shows say, I don't care what you've heard at a funeral I don't care what a pastor has stood on the platform and said something like, well, heaven got, the, got its newest angel today. When so, No, it didn't. No, it did not. That is not real. That is not right. You will never be an angel. And some of you hear that and you're like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. 
But I promise you, by the time we get to the end of this tonight, you're going to say, I am glad that I'm not going to be an angel. It is much better not to be an angel, and you'll see why as we go through some of this. So you're not going to be an angel. Okay, here's the second sort of just caveat clarification warning. Um, You do not have to believe everything that people write about angels or say they've experienced about angels or demons or everything you see in a movie or everything you see on a TV show or a documentary or anything that's on TV or media or print or the internet. You don't have to believe all that stuff. Are you ready for this? Even if the person saying it, writing it, making the movie says that they're a Christian, you still don't have to believe all that. In fact, you should be very slow to believe it and you should question it very, very seriously and examine it with the scriptures. Um, I, I did a, a search this afternoon. I'm not putting these up on the screen because I don't want to even promote them, really. But I just did a search for uh, movies about angels and demons. And uh, there was a Nicolas Cage movie. I think it was when I was in high school. And it was about a guy who decided not to be an angel and to become a human so he could marry this girl. And then she died right away. And it was so sad. And if you haven't seen it, that's the ending. But you're not missing anything because it's terrible. It's a Nicolas Cage movie. Why would you watch it anyways? It's terrible. (laughs) Totally unbiblical. Whole thing's about an angel. Totally made up. Unbiblical. Not true. Um, There's a movie with John Travolta where John Travolta is Michael, and he's got wings like under a trench coat or something like that, and he smokes through half the movie, and it's ridiculous. Um, Angels in the Outfield. Remember that? Angels in the Outfield. I didn't realize this, but as I was looking at it, they made like 15 spinoffs after that. Like there's angels in the infield, angels in the dugout, angels in the end zone, angels in the batter's box, angels in the da-da-da-da-da. It just goes on and on and on. Totally ridiculous. It's a Wonderful Life. I hate to burst your bubble. It's a fun movie at Christmas. Terrible view of angels and how all of that works. Um, Horror movies, I wrote some down. I don't even need to mention them. They're just ridiculous. They're comical. They're not what we read about when we read in the scriptures. And so as Christians, you don't have to believe everything that somebody tells you about angels, everything you see on a movie. Even if you buy the book or the movie or the whatever at the Christian bookstore. Maybe I should say especially if you buy it at the Christian bookstore. Or it's a painting on the wall there or a little figurine or something. I'm just telling you, a lot of the stuff that gets peddled in the name of angels and this is biblical and this is spiritual and blah, 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 blah. is just total garbage. So our goal tonight is to answer some just big questions about angels and demons and Satan. And here's one, just sort of one last warning, okay? This is from Dwayne Garrett. This is one of my Old Testament professors um, at Southern Seminary. He wrote a book on angels. I'll tell you about it in a minute. And in the beginning, the introduction of his book, he says, the Bible will not tell you everything you ever wanted to know about angels. You just got to live with that. Okay? You can ask questions, you can be curious, no problem in doing that. But when you take that curiosity and that inquisitiveness and you turn it to Google and you turn it to secular sources and all sorts of crazy stuff, you've, you've lost your mind a little bit. Listen to the Bible. It will tell you a lot of interesting things. It will not answer all your questions. 
And you just have to be okay with that. So what do you need to know? What do you need to know about angelology? Here we go. You need to know that God created personal spiritual beings known as angels. And I put that in quotes because I'm just using it as a broad category for personal spiritual beings. They have personhood. That does not mean they're made in God's image, but it does mean they have personhood. And they're spiritual, meaning they don't have physical bodies like we do, although they appear to human beings in different ways in different times. They're spiritual beings, and they're created by God. Okay, uh, Lots of different titles and words and descriptions would fall under this category. Sons of God, holy ones, spirits, watchers, thrones, dominions, principalities, authorities, powers, I could go on and on. Lots of little names that appear throughout the scriptures would fall under this category of spiritual, personal beings that God created. So look at Psalm 148. We'll look at these two verses very quickly. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. The hosts, the heavenly hosts, is a word for describing these spiritual beings. Praise him, sun and moon, shining stars, highest heaven, waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He created all of these things. And the purpose, we talked about this last week, the purpose of all these things that God created is to bring glory to him and to praise him. That includes these angelic beings. Look in the New Testament at Colossians 1, verse 16. Colossians 1, 16. It's talking about Jesus, and it says, By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through Jesus, and all things were created for Jesus. Their purpose in God making them was to bring glory to himself. Specifically, to the eternal creator word of God, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. That's why they exist. So God created them. There's no idea that God has always been around and then there's been these other beings that have always been around and they've just kind of always been there. There was a time when there were no angels. None of these spiritual beings and God created them. Okay? Subpoint: Angels were created before the physical universe and they're created in a state of innocence and perfection. You're not going to read about the creation of angelic spiritual beings in Genesis 1. Um, Genesis 1.31, some people would say, I disagree, but some people would say it's a reference to these heavenly hosts. Uh, but the clear passage is Job 38.7. So look at Job 38.7. This is God speaking to Job, putting Job in his place. And if you start up in Job 38.4, God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? He's talking about creation, right? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were his bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, that phrase sons of God used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the heavenly host, the angelic beings shouted for joy. And so what God is saying to Job is, Job, when I made everything that exists, the heavenly host, the sons of God, these 
personal spiritual beings were in effect cheering me on, applauding the work that I was doing in making this physical universe. So created before the physical universe. B, they exist in great numbers. And we just leave it at that. They exist in great numbers. And we'll just look at a familiar verse. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 13. All of these verses I've given you here refer to the multitude of these heavenly hosts, the multitude of these angels. Luke 2.13 says, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So there's one angel that appears to the shepherds and then suddenly here's a whole host, a multitude of them that appear alongside of them. And other verses say essentially the same thing. Could give you many verses that talk about this idea. They exist in great numbers. C, there's only two of them that are named in the Bible. Michael is described as an archangel, and Gabriel is described as a messenger. And I'm going to let you look up the references here on your own. There's two of them named, Michael and Gabriel, We know there's a multitude, and we know the names of two of them. Uh, Tony mentioned this when he prayed earlier. Angel actually means messenger. That's what the word actually means. In fact, sometimes in the Bible, the word angel in Hebrew or in Greek is actually used to talk about human beings who are taking a message, and you just figure it out by the context. It's not talking about a, you know, a spiritual being here. It's talking about someone delivering a message. They're a messenger. Other times, you, you can tell from the context, it's this, this sort of personal spiritual being. Um, put a picture up. If you read the Apocrypha, uh, the Apocrypha is a group of books that Catholics believe belong in the canon of Scripture. We do not believe they belong in the canon of Scripture, and we talked about that a few weeks ago when we talked about Revelation. Uh, But in the Apocrypha, you read uh, the name of one more angel. You read the name Raphael, and you read that there are actually seven archangels. And so when you get online and you just start looking for the Christian view of angels, I'm just telling you, this is the kind of stuff that's going to pop up. And you're going to read sites and find things on the Internet that say, oh, the Christian view of angels, da-da-da-da-da. There's seven, and there's their names, and there's all sorts of more stuff. And you just got to understand that when they say this Christian view, that's a very big umbrella. And we would look at that and say, yeah, but... They're getting some of their information from sources that we don't believe are biblical in any way, shape, or form. And so you've got to be very careful uh, with what you read. When somebody says to you, this is biblical, you need to check it out. You need to understand what they're actually talking about. So we know the names of two. Okay, D, cherubim and seraphim seem to be angels who surround God's presence and guard his holiness. Cherubim and seraphim. The seraphs are literally ones that are burning. That's what the Hebrew word means. They're burning ones. They're just constantly on fire. And the idea is that they're so close to the immediate presence of God that they're just constantly burning. And you say, how can a spiritual being burn? I have no clue how that works. It's just how they're described in the Bible. That's the word that's used. 
uh, cherubs, the cherubim. If you Google cherub, you're going to find a fat little baby with wings. That is not the biblical picture of what a cherub is. Uh, The idea of a cherub is usually they have human traits mixed with animal traits in some way, shape, or form. And the idea is that they are guardians uh, to the presence of God. You see that repeatedly. So you can look in Genesis 3 where God puts this flaming sword to guard his presence from Adam and Eve. Uh, We can look at Isaiah 6. We'll look at that one quickly. Just a familiar passage um, that talks about these beings that we read Isaiah 6 in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim the burning ones each had six wings with two he covered his face with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called to another and said holy 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 is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory so these are the seraphim and uh, in the cherubim. I will throw this in at this point as well. Um, we could mention other names, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, watchers, all these different terms. And a lot, I can't tell you how many books have been written trying to explain the pecking order of these angels, the hierarchy of these angels. Books have been, people have been writing books about this for hundreds and hundreds of years, saying, well, the seraphim are on top, and then the cherubim, and then the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, all the way down. And I'm telling you, I have read more of these books. I've read so many of these books, I could puke it up. None of the lists match. No one agrees on what the order is if there's a, a hierarchy in the angelic realm. Everybody gets them all jumbled up and mixed up and pulls this verse and that verse. And the takeaway is we have no idea. Is there an order, a hierarchy? Maybe. But we have absolutely no clue what that might be and what it looks like. So there's no point in speculating about it. There's no point in wasting ink writing about it and wasting your time thinking about it. It has no bearing on your life. But there are these angelic beings. They're given different names and apparently have different roles. And so we know that. One last idea, E. The angels who did not rebel against God, and we'll get to those who did, but those who did not in the New Testament are referred to as elect angels. Paul says that to Timothy. Talks about the presence of the elect angels. And the idea there, just to be very clear, is that The angels who did not rebel against God did not rebel because God's grace was poured out on them. It's not like they were just better than the ones who did rebel. It's that God was gracious to them in choosing them, and the reason they did not rebel is God's grace to them in electing them. And I know that makes some people uncomfortable, but that's the idea in the Scriptures, that you have some who rebelled and some who did not, and Paul refers to those who did not as the elect angels. And so you can sort that out in 1 Timothy. Okay? Number two. This is where we get to some important stuff. Angels are interested in the unfolding drama of redemption. And when I use the word angels here, I'm talking about what we would think of as angels, good angels, holy angels, the elect angels. And I'm also including in this category demons. And you would include in this category Satan. All of these spiritual beings that God created, some of them still love God, follow God, the elect angels, some of them have rebelled against God, but they all have an interest in this unfolding drama of how God is saving his people and how he's redeeming his people. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. 
To me, this is one of the most interesting verses in the whole Bible. Ephesians 3. Look at Ephesians 3, starting in verse 7. Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, and if you trace it back up, In the last few verses, in chapter 3, Paul has now used that word mystery four times. Verse 3, there's a mystery. Verse 4, there's a mystery of Christ. Verse 6, there's a mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. This mystery of God saving people from every tribe, every nation, every language. This mystery, it's been hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 10, so that through the church, through us... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I could give you a dozen reasons why God wants there to be a church. Okay? Helping the poor, building up the body of Christ, preaching the gospel, missions, on and on and on and on. But one reason that God wants there to be a church is that through the church, he can put his wisdom on display for all of the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And when you read in the book of Ephesians, what he's saying is, God is basically bragging to the demons through the church. Look what I did. Look at these people that I saved. Look at this great redemption that I've provided for Jew and to Gentile, bringing them into one body. This mystery that nobody understood for thousands and thousands of years. Look at what I've done And he's declaring his wisdom to these beings. It's an interesting verse to think about. Look at 1 Peter 1.12. 1 Peter 1.12. And again, we'll back up just a little bit so we get the idea. 1 Peter 1, we'll start in verse 10. Peter says, concerning this salvation, so we're talking about salvation. That's the subject. We're talking about salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, the people who wrote the Old Testament, that they were not serving themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, comma, this last little thought, Things into which angels long to look. These things about salvation. He just adds that little detail on. Doesn't seem to have anything else to do with his main point. He just sort of tacks it on and says, by the way, all these things about salvation, how God's revealed it through the prophets, how people have preached the gospel to you, how the Holy Spirit has confirmed all of this and worked all of this. All of these things, this unfolding drama of redemption, the angels long to look in on these things. They're fascinated by what God is doing in this plan of redemption. So the angels, the spiritual beings, are interested in the unfolding drama of redemption. I gave you a few examples here on this first point A, and I'm just going to let you look all of those up. 
Angels are present at the birth of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus. They're present in Gethsemane. They're present at the resurrection. They will be present at the return of Jesus. Why is that important? This is the the most central, pivotal time in God's plan of redemption when Jesus is walking the earth. And every step along the way, the angels are right there with him, walking along with him, longing to look into these things, doing his work, being his messengers. Over and over and over again, you read about them. B, angels are often sent to protect God's people. Often sent to protect God's people. And let's look at, uh, I like 2 Kings, so let's read 2 Kings quickly. 2 Kings 6, 15 to 17. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and he went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed, and he said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. And you can read the rest of the story. The point is, God sent these angelic hosts to protect Elisha and this servant and God's people. Okay, so angels do this. You can read the same thing in Hebrews, talking about angels doing this for believers. One last idea about this they're interested in the things of redemption. Angels will be involved in the final judgment. Involved in the final judgment. I'm going to let you read Matthew 13 and 16 and Mark 8. All of those verses talk about when Jesus comes back for the final judgment, he is bringing his angels with him. One of those parables that you'll read about, I think it's Matthew 13, even describes the angels as the reapers involved in sort of separating God's people from those who are not God's people. They will be involved in the final judgment. And then, if you notice in your notes, I gave you little ellipses, little dots, okay? Angels are involved in the final judgment. Then it flips. And we will be involved in the judgment of the angels. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. First Corinthians 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Just a fascinating little verse. You've got these people in Corinth and they're fighting and they're arguing and they can't come to any agreement. So they go outside of the church to these unrighteous judges to resolve their differences. And Paul says, how ridiculous is that? You can't straighten it out within your own church family. One of these days you're going to be responsible for judging the angels. 
And you can't even get on the same page in this life. Someday, human beings will be involved in judging the angels. So we'll kind of come back to that in a minute. Number three, let's talk about demons briefly. Demons are angels who rebelled against God. And we'll just start off with the idea that Satan is described as a prominent angel. That should say angel, not angels. Prominent angel who led a rebellion of angels. There's a lot of speculation about Satan and who he was and what his responsibilities were and what his name was. And some of these things you can draw out from the text. Some of these things are nothing but speculation. And you're going to read for yourself. If you're interested in this, I'm not going to just spoon feed all of this to you. You can read it. But you can look in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Two passages. Both of them seem to be talking about pompous pagan kings that God brought down in judgment. And then in the middle of talking about these kings, it's almost like the prophecy shifts And he begins to talk about somebody more than just a human king, some sort of angelic spiritual being that fell from a position of power. And you can read them, and you can draw your own conclusions. And there's a lot of Bible scholars that look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, and they say, that's just about kings, it's just about humans, it has nothing to do with Satan. And there's a lot of scholars that look at it and say, no, it has all, everything to do with Satan. That's all that it's about. And then there's a bunch of Bible scholars that say, well, it's about both. And you should read it for yourself and think about it. But it seems that both of these passages and talking about the judgment of human kings sort of shift and start to say, look, there was this one spiritual being who had great power, like a king on earth would have great power, great power in the spiritual realm. And he became proud and he led this rebellion and God brought him down in judgment. And the point of the prophecy is to say, just like God brought him down in judgment, he can bring these kings down in judgment, rest assured. You can look at those for yourself. Um, B, Satan took the form of a serpent to tempt Adam and Eve. If I asked you, when is the first time Satan is mentioned in the Bible, most of you would probably say Genesis 3. Satan is not mentioned as Satan in Genesis 3. You can go back and read it. All it talks about is the serpent. You read later in the book of Revelation, This idea that there was an ancient serpent, the devil, Satan. All of those titles sort of crammed together. Uh, But he is not mentioned in in Genesis 3. There's a couple of things I'll mention here. I did not have room to put this on your notes, but uh, things that you may may find interesting. Um, In the Old Testament, Satan is only mentioned three times. It's kind of interesting. You'd think he would be in there a lot. Um, lots of different things going on. He's all throughout the New Testament. He's present regularly. In the Old Testament, he's mentioned three times. He's mentioned once in Chronicles when Satan incites David to take a census of the people. He's mentioned by name there, tempting David to take this census that God was not pleased with. He's mentioned in the book of Job as afflicting Job and trying to destroy Job and trying to slander God's character. And then he's mentioned once in the minor prophet Zechariah accusing the high priest Joshua of his filthiness and his dirtiness in a vision. And that's all that he's mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, When you turn to the New Testament, he's there more often, but his character is exactly the same. He's the adversary of God's people and he's the tempter of God's people. Those are the two big ideas 
you need to have for who is Satan and what does he mean to me. He's the adversary, the enemy, the opponent, and he's the tempter trying to tempt God's people. And you can see that when he shows up and talks to Jesus, right? He's clearly his adversary and he's tempting him to disobey the Lord. You can see that when uh, Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ and then Jesus says, you're right, and now I'm about to go die on a cross. And Peter says, that's the worst plan ever. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're trying to work against my plan. You're my adversary. You're tempting me to take another way out. Uh, So you see these things repeatedly. Here's one thing I have no explanation for uh, other than I'll just mention it to you. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and even Acts a little bit, you read about demons, 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 evil spirits. You read these two sort of terms over and over and over again, demons and evil spirits. And often it's Jesus is casting them out of people, right? He's exercising these demons. or The exact word is he's casting them out. Then when you get to the letters of Paul, which make up a good chunk of the rest of the New Testament, you almost never read about demons. Almost never. Even in the book of Acts, they sort of seem to almost fade off the scene. And Paul only a couple of times uses the word demons. All the other times Paul talks about spiritual beings, he talks about principalities and powers and thrones and dominions and world spirits and elemental spirits and all these sort of different ideas. And I don't really have a great explanation for that other than to say when Jesus was on the earth... The demons, you read in the gospel, they consistently knew who he was. We've already said they have an interest in this unfolding plan of redemption. They have this understanding in the gospels that judgment is coming. And it's almost like this last gasp of rebellion against the one that they know has authority to judge them. It's like one last spasm before they know they're going to die. And it's just this all-out assault on people who are around Jesus. And you read, you read the Gospels and you're like, if you've read through the Bible, Old Testament up through the Gospels, you get to the Gospels, you're like, where did these demons come from? You don't read about them in the Old Testament. You don't read about that like you do in, in the Gospels. And it's just this overtly oppressive thing. Everywhere Jesus goes, there's demons. And the only way I can explain that is to say it was like a last-ditch, all-hands-on-deck effort to derail what Jesus was doing. They didn't exactly understand what he was doing. They didn't exactly understand how it was going to happen. But they know they wanted to work against him and to stop him and to make things difficult. And then after that, after the resurrection and the ascension, there's some stories of demon possession, but it just fades off. And it's not nearly as intense. And so that's just... uh, Maybe you have a better theory about that, but that's the way it works in the Bible. One thing we do know is this. Demons are involved in false teaching and false religions. And I want you to hear me. I'm not saying to you that demons inspire all false religions or all false teachings. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying every religion except Christianity is demonically inspired. I'm not saying that's true for all faiths, all false teachings. I am saying it's true for some of them. If you listen to the scriptures, you have to understand it is true for some false teaching and some false religion. And I want you to see these verses. Look at Deuteronomy 32. I'm going to give you Old Testament verse, two Old Testament verses and one in the New. Deuteronomy 32. Verse 
This is Moses at the end of his life. Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. It's sort of in the middle of a song. And he says, They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. What he seems to be saying is there were demons involved in the creation of these new gods and deities that the people of Israel were bowing down and offering sacrifices to and worshiping. And he's saying, look, those didn't just come out of thin air. Demons stood behind those those gods and goddesses. Look at Psalm 106. It's like a parallel passage to Deuteronomy. Psalm 106, verse 35. Go to verse 34. It says, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. And they poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. So in verse 36, it talks about idols. In verse 38, it talks about idols. And in verse 37, it just equates the two and says they're offering these sacrifices to demons. The implication is they stand behind as some sort of animating force behind these powers. Paul says the same thing, 1 Timothy 4, just so you don't think it's a weird Old Testament thing. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage. They require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving for those who believe and know the truth. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it was received with, with thanksgiving. It is made holy by the word of God and with prayer. But what he's saying is all these rules that some of these people are making up and they're trying to slap on as, as good moral religion, they're demonically inspired. It's not the teaching of man only. It's the teaching of demons. They stand behind some of these false faiths and these false ideas. Okay, Why do you need to know all this? That's a... Over the top, very quick summary of what you need to know. Why is it important? Let me give you a few thoughts. Number one, angels are an example of humble worship. Humble worship. We've already read Isaiah 6. We don't need to read it again. But in Isaiah 6, you have holy angels worshiping God, the seraphim worshiping God. And the thing that they confess as holy angels is that God is holy, holy, holy holy the holy ones the angels worshiping God and praising him for his holy holy holiness that's the one thing that they confess over and over and you see it in revelation too and not only do they confess God's holiness but they're covering their eyes they're covering their feet and there's a humility when these sinless beings come into the presence of God sometimes we think it's just my sin that ought to make me sort of cower before God and fear God. Your sin should make you cower before God and fear God and be humble before him. But apart from the fact that you're a sinner, you're a creature. And you've got to remember there's a distance between creator and creature that ought to make you humble in worship. When you come before God in worship, corporately or personally, it should not be a flippant thing for you. 
That doesn't mean you need to cover your eyes and your feet or you need to lay on your face every time. But it does mean there needs to be humility in your heart to acknowledge, one, I'm a sinner. Two, I'm a creature. God is holy, 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 and I am not. And there ought to be a humility in our worship like you see with the angels. Okay, number two, they exist to help God's people in time of need. Hebrews 1.14, they're ministering spirits sent to us. So I want to acknowledge that, and then I want to come back and say to you, you cannot make a biblical case for the idea of guardian angels. You can point to a thing here or there, and I'm just telling you it's not convincing. It doesn't mean there aren't guardian angels. It just means from the text of Scripture, you can't show it to me. You can't conclusively prove there are angels. You have one, and you have one, and you have one, and they guard you, and they watch you, and they protect you. That's just a, an unbiblical idea that sort of got filtered into the church, and somebody said, well, we need a verse for that. Let's go here, and it's not a real, uh, a real biblical idea. There's no warrant biblically for talking to angels or praying to angels or trying to communicate with angels or seeking an experience with angels or worshiping angels, or singing to angels. Any of that stuff is absolutely ridiculous. In fact, Paul, when he writes to the church in Colossae, says, some of you guys have basically fallen into the trap of worshiping angels. It's ridiculous. You need to knock it off. Stop it. You worship Jesus. You don't worship angels. Okay. So that being said, they do exist to help God's people in time of need. Three and four go together. Three, they remind us that the unseen world is real. I think that most of you are a lot like me and that we tend to forget that. We tend to worry about brake pads and tennis shoes and hamburgers and roofs on our houses and stuff like that. Physical things, real things, right? Things that are really there. And when you read about this in the scriptures, you just remind yourself, the things that I can see are not the only things that are real. It's good to be reminded of that, okay? Along with that, number four, angels remind us of the scandal of God's grace. And I gave you this verse in 1 Peter 12 just because it reminds us that the angels are longing to look into these matters of salvation. They're fascinated by what God has done for human beings. You understand when you, when you add up everything we've talked here about angels, the angels who rebelled against God, they didn't get a second chance, There was no hope of redemption. There was no offer of salvation. There was no promise that God would send someone to do something that would then bring them back into a relationship with God. It was one sin, that's it. One act of rebellion, and you're separated from God. You're no longer part of his family or of his people or of his grace. You've cut yourself off from that. And it reminds you sort of of the justice of God. Sometimes we, we get a little bit entitled with God and we start to think, well, why, did, why this? And doesn't he owe me this? And that seems a little bit harsh when I read this story in the Bible. It seems like God's a little bit grouchy with Nadab and Abihu and with Uzzah and with all these people. They just get killed, Ananias and Sapphira right away. Well, it just seems like God's kind of cranky. Well, if you want to talk about, I hate to use the word cranky, but if you want to talk about the justice of God, think about his relationship with these angels who rebelled. One act of rebellion, and that's it. 
And none of those angels got a raw deal. None of them treated unfairly. All of them received justice, exactly what they had coming. And it's a scandalous thing. We sing a song on Sunday mornings called Scandal of Grace. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It's kind of a ridiculous thing to think that God, the creator, would humble himself and do something to save the people who rebel against him over and over and over and over again rebel against him, constantly rebel against him with our words and our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes. We're just rebellious, stiff-necked, stubborn people. And the scandal of the idea that God would humble himself to bring those people back into a relationship with him, the angels have not experienced that. And they look at our experience and they say, there's something different here. There's something amazing here. And it's kind of a a humbling thing when you look at all the thousands of dopey books that people have written about angels. All this speculation and trying to answer all these questions and all this goofy stuff If you listen to the Bible, you say, the angels don't even care about that stuff. All that stuff you're so interested in and speculating about and questions you want to know. What they want to know is about salvation through Jesus. That's what they're interested in looking into. Why don't you pay more attention to that than all these speculative questions that you have about all these spiritual beings and things God hasn't revealed to us. Their interest is what God has done for us through Christ. So, Let me put a quote up. I don't think I put this on your outline. This is from C.S. Lewis. This is my favorite quote about angels and demons that anybody's written. He says, there's two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. They hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. They're happy for you to think that they don't exist. They love it. They got you right where they want you. Or they're happy for you to be fascinated and obsessed with them and speculate and to waste your time and all these silly questions about angels and demons and spiritual beings. They've got you right where they want you right there too. Yes, they're real. No, we shouldn't be totally obsessed with them. I think there's a good balance in there. And two more reminders I'll, I'll add to that, okay? We never can think about Satan as God's equal. Never, never, never. Greater is the one who is in you than the one who's in the world, 1 John 4, 4. If you want to think about the parallel to Satan, you think about Michael as a parallel to Satan. You don't think about God and Satan as equals. You don't think about Jesus and Satan as equals. When you see that stupid picture of Jesus and Satan arm wrestling on Facebook and they want you to like or comment or whatever, you just think that is blasphemous to put them on the same level like that. Blasphemous. You're telling me that creature is going to arm wrestle with creator? It's blasphemy. It's not just silly. It's not just something to get feedback on likes and comments and stuff. It's blasphemy to suggest that there's an equality there. There is not an equality with Satan and Jesus, and you've got to remember that. The last idea is this. We are called, we need to be ready to stand against the schemes of Satan and the demons. Not to attack them, not to go on the offensive against them. The Bible never calls us to do that. The Bible calls us to stand. Stand your ground against them. 
And the way you do that is you love God and you obey God. That's how you stand. And we'll, let's look up these verses. Let's look up Ephesians 6. You know 1 Peter 5.8. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to, to devour. But Ephesians 6 is the clearest call for what we're to do in response to these demons. And I'll just mention one thing before we read it. In Ephesians 6, all of the you's that we're going to read, they're all these second person pronouns, you, 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 they're all plural. So it's like y'all, you guys. This is to the church. It's not just to you as the individual. You as the individual can't do any of these things on your own. You can only do them with the the corporate body. So Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's sad. I don't know if you guys ever read Christian fiction. It's sad that the only people who really take that seriously take it and run with it in the direction where they say, there's these spiritual forces of evil, these principalities, these powers. We're supposed to go out and bind them and pray against them and da-da-da-da, all this stupid, ridiculous garbage. This is not what Paul says to do here. He does not say, go out and figure out the demon over your city and bind it in Jesus' name and all this ridiculous nonsense. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. There's that idea, you're standing in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, verse 14, stand therefore, stand, 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 four times. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. You cannot stand against spiritual powers if you don't know the truth. Cannot do it. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. If you are living in sin intentionally and deliberately, you cannot stand against demonic powers. You cannot stand against the lion, Satan, who prowls around looking for people to devour. You can't stand against him when you're living your life in intentional, unrepentant sin. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness by the gospel of peace. If you don't know the gospel... You're not ready to talk about the gospel. You're not able to share the gospel. You cannot stand against spiritual forces that we're wrestling with. You can't do it. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says you've got to stand. We could spend all night talking about Ephesians 6, but we're out of time. So let me mention a couple of books, Um, good books, because there's a million bad books. Um, Let me just mention a couple. Um, C.S. Lewis has written a book, wrote a book, it's a long time ago, old book, he's dead, but he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, 
How a Senior Devil Instructs a Junior Devil in the Art of Temptation. And the book is written from the perspective of a demon. And I think you would find this a very, I don't know that entertaining is the right word, an engaging book to read. It's not entertaining, but it's an engaging read. Um, he certainly, to make the, the storyline of the book flow, um, you know, he's kind of speculative at some points. But I think the, the general idea of how temptation works and how demons want to attack you is very, very helpful. And I think you'll read the book and you'll realize, oh, I've thought that. Oh, I've been tempted with that. Oh, I've been in that exact situation. It's just a very realistic portrayal of what temptation looks like. It's not, you know, spraying vomit and people crawling on the ceiling and ridiculous, silly stuff. It's real stuff. Like the demons want you to be too busy with something good to care about your family. That's demonic temptation. We don't think about it. We think of like, you know, crazy stuff. But I think he's got, he's onto something there. Um, there's a book by Dwayne Garrett. I gave you a quote by him earlier. It's called Angels in the New Spirituality. If you want to read a biblical account of angels and how that's sort of been twisted in, in our day and a lot of different sort of new age type thought. This is a great read. It's not a difficult read. And uh, what are angels? What do they really do? How accurately are they portrayed in TV and books? Great book by Dr. Garrett. And then one last book I'll mention is this. Um, this is a book Angie gave me, actually. And I'll, sometimes I cringe when people give me books because I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't want to read that. But you gave it to me, so I got to read it. I'm not going to like it. This was really good. She gave me this one. It's the big one. And it was really, really great. And then just because I liked it, I bought the small, like, this is the Cliff Notes version. So if you really like to read, you get this one. And if you just want to get through it quick, you get this one. Uh, but this guy talks about what does the Bible teach about the unseen world and why does it matter? And his name is Michael Heiser, and it's a great, a great book. You'd enjoy reading it. So there you go. That's...